Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Good morning to our viewers online as well. We're continuing our message series on the book of Ruth, and we're continuing to talk about this concept of chesed love. If you want to say that right, you got to kind of like hakalugi kind of thing. Chesed love. All right. So over the past two weeks, we've learned about Naomi, a woman who uh, moved with her husband and her two sons to Moab. And uh, while they're in Moab, her husband and both sons die. Um, and then all she's left with are her two daughters-in-law. She decides to go back to Bethlehem since she hears that there are crops again there. And so we see the first demonstration of Hesed love in the story when on the way back, uh, Naomi insists that her daughters-in-law go back to their families in order for them to be able to one day remarry and have a future. Um, and in essence, risking her own livelihood and her own future by doing that. We see the second demonstration of chesed love uh, when one of the daughters-in-law, Ruth, chooses to leave her homeland, her family, and her own religion uh, in order to stay by Naomi's side. She commits herself to Naomi, she commits herself to Naomi's people, and she commits herself to Naomi's God, Yahweh. When we left off last week, Naomi and Ruth had made the long journey from Moab uh, to Bethlehem, and they had arrived just in time for the barley harvest. Now we come to chapter 2, where we meet the fascinating character of Boaz. Um, what we're going to see are a number of parallels between Boaz's relationship with Ruth and Jesus' relationship with us. How Boaz treats Ruth is going to serve as an image for how Jesus treats us. We want to keep that in mind as we go through the rest of the story because this is one of the main points of the book of Ruth. It is to depict the chesed love of God for his people in and through the actions of Boaz and his love towards Ruth. So verse 1 says this. Now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. So in this first verse, we are now introduced to this man named Boaz. Uh, Boaz, we're told, was a relative of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. Uh, Matthew chapter 1 says that Boaz was the son of Salmon and Rahab. And Rahab, you remember, was the, was the prostitute um, who helped, who, who, she lived in Jericho in the promised land and helped the Israelites uh, in capturing the city by hiding two of these spies who had been sent out to scout out the city prior to the attack. So as a relative, uh, Boaz would certainly qualify as a kinsman redeemer, and you'll, um, you'll hear more about that next week. Um, we're also told that Boaz is a wealthy and influential man. Verses 2 and 3 say this. One day Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who was kind enough to let me do it, Naomi replied. All right, my daughter, go ahead. 
So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. So God, in his mercy to uh, immigrants, to widows, to the poor, instituted laws that governed the harvesting of produce. Uh, Leviticus 19, verses 9 through 10, says that the harvesters are to leave the corners of the field and the leftovers of the harvest for those people who are in need. It says this, When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields, and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. It is the same with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vines, and do not pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. So Ruth then, a Gentile, which means a non-Jew, um, went out to glean. Uh, glean. Gleaning is picking up what the harvesters left behind. And she just happened to do so in a field belonging to Boaz, uh, one of Naomi's deceased husband's relatives. Thousands of fields to pick from. And she just happened to pick Boaz's. Coincidence? I don't think so. It's interesting how uh, behind the scenes, God was drawing Ruth to Boaz's field. And God still does that today. Think about it. Were there, every, were there ever any coincidences in your life, coincidences, uh, that drew you to faith in Christ? Ways in which God orchestrated events or meeting certain people um, that had God not done that, you may never have come to faith in Christ. Here's one of mine. So uh, my wife Jackie and I have had different people live with us over the years. And just as a, a way to be a blessing uh, to people who need help, need a place to stay, um, so our friend, his name is Daniel Goulet, um, who was also an opera singer turned pastor, like myself. Um, this, was all, this was all before that. Um, and he had just come back from singing in Germany and needed a place to stay. So we offered him to move in with us. Um, he had lived with us before uh, when we were all in grad school together. And uh, so we knew what this looked like. And so we now offered for him to move back in. So this would have been in the late 90s. And we were living in Champaign, Illinois, which if you don't know where that is, it's about two and a half hours south of Chicago, um, about a couple hours west of Indianapolis, and about two and a half hours northeast of St. Louis. There, got it? Boom. <laughs> All right. So... While he was living with us, uh, he started to go to this contemporary, spirit-filled church, uh, kind of like this one, only bigger. Um, God was doing this amazing work in his life. Um, you could see the transformation happening in him. For one, uh, after he started going to this church, 
He'd sit in his room for hours, like playing and singing worship songs. Like, I remember being annoyed by that. Like, can't you play a song like from the 80s or something? You know, <laughs> like a rock song or something. You know, I'm just being honest, all right? Uh, he eventually moved out. And then my sister, Autumn, uh, she's been here a few times, maybe you've met her. Uh, she started having a hard time down in Florida. Um, bad boyfriends, um, drinking too much, and uh, all kinds of things. And so Jackie and I drove down from Illinois to Florida and basically like did an intervention and had her come back to Illinois and move in with us uh, so that we could help her get her life back on track. So she enrolled in the community college, got a job, uh, started going to AA, and uh, started going to church. Well, it was weird. It was weird. Because coincidentally, um, Autumn started attending that same church that Daniel went to. Uh, and coincidentally... She would sit for hours in her room, the very same room, and play and sing these worship songs like all day. I mean, the coincidence was just weird. Um, she was even singing many of the same songs. Um, she eventually invited us to her church. Uh, I met Jesus, right? Not just a knowledge of Jesus, but an encounter with the person of Jesus. Um, met the Holy Spirit discovered his power, right? Sometimes uh, it caused me to weep. Sometimes it caused me to sob uncontrollably. A few times his power overwhelmed me and I couldn't even stand. Sometimes he'd give me a word for someone. Sometimes I would get to see cool things like people getting healed. But the coolest thing was seeing others come to Jesus, just seeing people set free, Seeing them experience the Spirit's power, seeing them experience God's love. And then in one day, the Lord made it clear uh, that he was calling me into ministry. And as Paul Harvey would say, and now you know the rest of the story. Maybe that's an old, if you're like under 40, you don't have any clue like who Paul Harvey is, but... Go look him up. He's probably on YouTube or something. <laughs> so God is still in the business of drawing people and, uh, and setting up opportunities for them to meet his son. Um, he is constantly working behind the scenes, um, drawing people to himself. All right, the next verses uh, in our scripture this morning are, while she was there, <clears throat> Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, he said. The Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. Then Boaz asked his foreman, who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? And the foreman replied, she's a young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She's been hard at work ever since except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. So Boaz notices Ruth right away, and he, and he asks his foreman about her. Uh, the foreman notes that she is a foreigner from Moab who came back with Naomi. 
um, he tells Boaz, she asked for, for, for permission before she started gathering grain behind the harvesters uh, and that she's been hard at work all day. We learn a lot about Ruth from these verses. Um, we're reminded that she is a foreigner, she's an immigrant, uh, which means that she would have been on the fringes of society. Um, she would have been looked at with suspicion, maybe even hatred, because um, she was from the opposing country of Moab. So Ruth was risking a lot, and she was demonstrating tremendous courage uh, going out in the fields by herself and trying to get some leftover food. Um, also, the fact that she asked for permission um, revealed that she had a sense of respect and propriety about her. Um, just because it was the law, um, she didn't assume that it was okay for her just to go in there and just start gleaning, start collecting the leftover grain. She didn't go in there demanding her rights. She didn't go in expecting a handout. Um, she asks for permission. We also see that she started work in the morning, and she'd been working hard all day except for just a few minutes of rest. So we know that she is a hard worker. Um, but I'm sure what really got Boaz's attention was that she had demonstrated chesed love to Naomi. And we'll see later how Boaz will demonstrate chesed love to Ruth. So I want to talk more about this concept of chesed love. Um, chesed love has at its core, at its nature, um, covenantal, it has a covenantal nature to it. Um, in seminary, they make you study uh, ancient Near Eastern treaties. Sounds like fun, huh? Ancient Near Eastern treaties. Um, so these ancient Near Eastern treaties are formal agreements between two parties. Like ancient, like law school, but in ancient <laughs> Middle East kind of thing. So why do they make you study this? Um, because the biblical covenants were modeled after them. Um, so in a covenant, like, like these ancient Near Eastern treaties, um, a formal agreement is made between two parties, usually one that is more powerful and one that is less powerful. The one that is more powerful is often referred to as the suzerain, suzerain and the one that is less powerful is referred to as the vassal. Um, the vassals protected by the suzerain so long as the terms of the treaty are fulfilled. So in a biblical covenant, God, of course, is the suzerain and his people are the vassal. Um, and in this kind of deal, like the agreement was typically made, you would take an animal and you'd split it in half and then each party would walk through the two halves, basically saying, um, I agree to commit to this, and if I ever break this, it is punishable by death. So the thing is, even though the vassal, um, in this case, 
in our case, continues to break the terms of the covenant. God demonstrates his faithfulness to the covenant over and over and over again. He could just say, okay, I'll wipe you out. But he doesn't. He always keeps his word to his people. He always seeks after their welfare. Um, He always shows love and compassion and mercy and grace, even when it isn't reciprocated. And this covenantal faithfulness is, of course, chesed. Um, God showing love and compassion and forgiveness and mercy and grace to his people, even when they are unfaithful to him. We need to understand that this kind of love has the power to change our world because it is the opposite of what we see all around us. When love and forgiveness and mercy are shown um, in a world where we're not used to seeing this, um, people take notice. And that is when God's glory is made manifest. So for example, um, you may remember, you may not, um, in uh, October of 2006, um, the tragic Amish school shooting of 10 girls. If you remember it, you'll remember uh, the amazing thing that unfolded in the hours and the days following the event. The Amish community, they didn't cast blame. They didn't point fingers. Um, Instead, they reached out with grace and compassion and forgiveness toward the killer's family. Uh, The afternoon of the shooting, an Amish grandfather of one of the girls who was killed expressed forgiveness towards the killer. That same day, Amish uh, neighbors visited the killer's family to comfort them, to be there for them in their sorrow and their pain. And later that week, at the killer's funeral, um, there were more Amish mourners there than anyone else. It's ironic uh, that the killer had been tormented for nine years prior um, by the premature death of his own daughter. She was born three months premature and she died 20 minutes after birth. He never forgave God for her death. And before the the shooting, he left a letter for his wife um, and after reading it, she said, she said this, she said, in some way, he felt like he was getting back at the Lord for the loss that we had sustained. Yet after he cold-bloodedly shot 10 innocent Amish school girls, five of whom ended up dying, um, the Amish almost immediately forgave him and showed chesed love to his family. When that happened, uh, people like all over the place gained a a great deal of respect for the Amish community. 
um, because of their demonstration of this kind of love. Uh, and it was because of Ruth's display of chesed love that Boaz respected her and he wanted to show her chesed love in return. Verses 8 and 9 say this. Boaz went over and said to Ruth, listen to my daughter. Stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they're harvesting and then follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you're thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. So beginning in verse 8, Boaz tells Ruth two things initially. One, he says, stay in my field. And then two, he says, stay close to the young women who are working in my field. So in his commentary on the book of Ruth, uh, Robert Hubbard suggests that Boaz's invitation to Ruth to stay in his field with his young women is a pretty important detail. Here's what he says. He says, first, Boaz's instruction seemed to grant Ruth some sort of status in Boaz's household. Certainly, Ruth's reaction suggested that she got more than she originally sought. Probably the most one can say is that Boaz granted Ruth an informal status as, again, by modern analogy, most favored gleaner. His workers would treat her as if she belonged with them because he said so. Here she stepped from outside Israel to the outer edge of the inner circle. Second, the instruction, in effect, placed Ruth under Boaz's protection. Chesed love. So Ruth, the outsider, the stranger, the foreigner, uh, the immigrant, is welcomed into the company of Boaz's people. This was more than Ruth could have hoped for. Remember, remember her vulnerable position. So she's, she's a woman, she's a widow, she's an immigrant from a country that's not really liked by the Israelites. Um, she didn't know a soul in Boaz's field. She comes looking for leftovers for her and Naomi so they can eat. And she's not turned away, she's welcomed. So I want to use this part of the story to talk a little bit about the church. The church, the church in general, uh, has often failed to welcome the outsider into the family of God. We've certainly not responded with chesed uh, love like Boaz does with Ruth. I think most of you are familiar with the Jesus people movement in the 60s and 70s in this country. Um, some of you probably personally took part in that. Um, I, I bought a book several years ago about the history of this movement. Uh, it's called God's Forever Family by Larry Eskridge. Uh, it's cool to me personally because um, I've met some of the folks uh, talked about in this book, like sort of spiritual parents to me who I would not be here doing what I am today uh, were it not for some of them. 
So here's an example from the book I want to share with you. Um, Back in the 60s, there were a lot of Christians ministering to hippie kids on the streets of San Francisco. Maybe you remember this? The Jesus People Movement? Yeah, the hippies and the... Yeah, it's kind of cool. Okay, so um, in the 60s, there were people ministering to these hippie kids, um, in this case, in, in the streets of San Francisco. And they turned to some of the established churches at the time uh, in the area to try to get them to help reach these kids. Uh, maybe even try to provide like some housing for, for some of them, um, since so many of them were um, addicted to drugs and homeless. So when a request was made by a pastor uh, to a congregation to house one of these hippie kids um, that they were trying to get off the streets, one woman responded in a way that spoke volumes about the attitudes of many of these conservative church members. When he asked this question, you know, would any of you be willing to open up, open up your home to any of these kids? The woman just stared at him in disbelief, and this is what she said. She said, Pastor, that between my clean sheets? That would be an example of the church's failure to welcome the outsider. That kind of behavior, I speak for myself, breaks my heart. That wasn't Boaz's posture towards Ruth, the foreigner, the immigrant. Uh, More importantly, that's not God's posture towards us, who naturally are outsiders uh, in the kingdom of God, right? We're only in because of him and his grace. God does not shame us. God doesn't reject us. God opens up his door to his kingdom through faith in Jesus. But before that, we were all outsiders. In Hosea uh, chapter 2, God speaks of a day of ultimate restoration when he will save all of his people. I think the wording is fascinating. It says this, In that day I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the sky as it pleads for clouds, and the sky will answer the earth with rain. Then the earth will answer the thirsty cries of the grain, the grapevines, and the olive trees. And they in turn will answer, Jezreel, God plants. At that time I will plant a crop of Israelites and raise them for myself. I will show love to those I called not loved. And to those I called not my people, I will say, now you are my people. And they will reply, you are our God. As we'll see over the coming weeks in this series, um, Boaz is a foreshadowing of Jesus. And the chesed love that he shows Ruth, an outsider, is a foreshadowing of the chesed love that Jesus shows us. Um, And in this case, Boaz does with Ruth what Jesus does with us. He says to not my people, 
You are now my people. I think we sometimes forget, we just just forget, it's natural, that Jesus did this for us. Um, He opens the door to the outsider, to the foreigner, to the stranger, to the person who's in the back of the crowd who feels like they are unworthy to even be present. This is what the Lord does. Um, Jesus is in the business of spotting Ruth's and welcoming them in. This is what chesed is. Um, It is showing grace and compassion and forgiveness. Um, It is reaching out to those who are on the fringes and welcoming them in. So when Boaz says this in verse 9, he says, I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. Uh, This is kind of revealing uh, and maybe a little bit unsettling that Boaz has to say this. Um, It implies, of course, that without him saying this, uh, the young men might have harassed Ruth, might have even assaulted her. So it reveals several dynamics that are at play uh, in this culture. So there's the low status of women in this culture. There's the low status of foreigners uh, and the low status of the gleaning poor. So being a woman itself was risky enough, but to be a poor female immigrant um, who's gleaning in the fields of another person who's, is probably a very extremely precarious position to be in. Um, even though there was a law that said that Ruth could glean, you can imagine uh, that there might be some tension between the paid workers and the poor people who are coming along behind them. So Ruth was in a very vulnerable situation. Um, so we need to keep, in, keep that in mind when we see that uh, this wealthy landowner, Boaz, extending his protection to cover her. To protect her. Uh, Daniel Block in the New American Commentary on Ruth uh, makes this interesting observation. He says, Boaz is hereby instituting the first anti-sexual harassment policy in the workplace recorded in the Bible. It's an interesting angle. Uh, so by identifying Ruth with his own laborers and warning the young men not to harass her, Um, Boaz was bringing her under his own care, his own protection. And the same is true uh, for God with us. By his grace, he draws us under the protection of his wings. That's that, you'll hear that language throughout scripture. Um, And we will see more of this kind of image of covering, of protecting, uh, as we get into chapter three in, in the book of Ruth. Let's look at the last part of verse 9. Boaz says this. uh, He says, And when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. So Boaz saw Ruth. He welcomed Ruth into the inner circle of his people. Uh, He offered Ruth his protection. And then Boaz tops it off with this surprisingly generous act. Uh, He tells her that she too was welcome to drink the water from the vessels that the young men would fill. Why is this surprising? 
So customarily in this culture, uh, women drew water for men and foreigners would draw water for Israelites. Uh, But when Ruth tells, or when he tells Ruth to take water along with the Israelites, water that was drawn by his young men, right? He's, He's flipping all these things. He is showing Ruth chesed love. Robert Hubbard says this in his commentary on Ruth. He says, what an interesting touch. A foreign woman who customarily would draw water for Israelites was welcome to drink water drawn by Israelites. Further coupled with his granting of permission, the gesture marked a very generous, unexpected concession. Ruth recognizes this grace, uh, this act of compassion from Boaz. We can see it in her response in the next verse. It says, Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. I am only a foreigner. So Ruth's basically shaking her head and saying, like, I don't get it. Why are you so kind to me? I'm a Moabite. She's amazed. Right? What's what's with all this undeserved kindness? Have you ever come to a point in your life uh, where you just stop and you just shake your head in disbelief at all the ways that God has just poured out his grace on your life? You ever have those moments? You look back and you just see all the blessing, you see the provision, all the ways in which he's poured out love on you even when you didn't know him or acknowledge him. Maybe you're even running from him. I'm sure there are people here who can relate to that. God is good, is he not? All right, the next few verses. Yes, I know, Boaz replied, but I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. I hope I continue to please you, sir, she replied. You have comforted me by speaking so kindly to me, even though I am not one of your workers. So Ruth's amazed at Boaz's kindness, um, and she's asking why, why he's so kind. And what we learn is that Boaz knew all about Ruth and her commitment to Naomi before she knew anything about him. And again, this is a picture of Jesus. Jesus, who knew all that we were before we ever knew him. Jesus, who sees our good deeds even when we don't tell anyone. Jesus, who sees our faithfulness even when no one else sees. Um... What Ruth, what Ruth does is done out of sacrificial love, chesed, right? She's not trying to look loving. She's trying to be loving. Um, in the person of Ruth, we see a combination of several godly traits, right? She's dedicated. She's a hard worker. She's loyal. 
She's humble. She's not trying to draw attention to herself. And, and with Boaz, she's dependent on grace. The next two verses say this. At mealtime, Boaz called to her, come over here and help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in the sour wine. So she sat with his harvesters, and Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. She ate all she wanted and still had some left over. When Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her. And pull out some heads of barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her. Let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time. So Boaz continues to show chesed love to Ruth by inviting her into his inner circle to have lunch. Right? Ruth ate so much that she was full. She even had some left over. And then Boaz continues to show her even more chesed love, right? When Ruth goes back into the field after lunch, Boaz tells his men to watch out for her, to not embarrass her, like even if she starts gathering in between the sheaves, and to even drop some bundles on purpose for her. And don't give her a hard time. Have you ever been treated like this? That's my question. Have you ever been shown enormous generosity or grace when you had nothing to offer in return. I have. I think most of you know that I grew up pretty poor. Um, we were on food stamps. Clothes were all secondhand. Many times the power got shut off because we couldn't pay the uh, electric bill. One year we lived in rural upstate New York, um, didn't have any running water, so there was no indoor toilet, there was no shower, like you had to go out to the well to get water, um, you had to go out to the outhouse outside to go to the bathroom. So I knew, that's just, I'm just painting a picture for you, so I knew barring a miracle, um, if I was ever going to go to college, um, I would have to do well, in, well enough in school to like get some kind of scholarship because I knew my family would never be able to send me. So I did pretty well until the 11th grade. That's when I started hanging out with the wrong group of friends. Um, we were skipping school. We were drinking. We were smoking pot. Um, that year, I had 150 unexcused absences. I think there's only like 180 day, days in a school year, right? So this is like back in the 80s, uh, be late 80s. And even then, there was like this computer that would like call your house, you know, try to tell your parents, hey, your kid's not coming to school. But I, it, always called, it always called at the same time, which is like 4 o'clock, so I'd always intercept that call. Uh, but, you know, when you get to the end of the school year and you are, uh, they're telling you you're, you fail <laughs> and you're going to have to repeat, uh, so at some point you've got to fess up. You've got to tell your folks, like, hmm. So uh, I had to repeat my junior year, um, and I was sure that was the end of my dream of ever going to college. 
definitely was the end of my dream, felt like it was the end of my dream of ever getting out of poverty. But again, God is good. He is the God who pours out grace. He is the God who demonstrates his chesed love for us. Um, Even when we don't deserve it. Like none of us do. So here's the rest of that story. My grandmother was always faithful to take my sister and I to her church. Sidebar. Grandparents, the things you do to pour into your grandchildren can have an eternal impact. I would not be standing here today were it not for my grandmother. Just telling you. And even if you don't have grandkids, you see anybody else's grandkids, (laughs) start start praying. Lord, show me how to be a blessing. Um, So my grandmother was always faithful to take my sister and I to her church. It was a traditional Presbyterian church. Um, And around this time, someone invited me to sing in the youth choir at church. And for some reason, I said yes. Then they invited me to sing in the adult choir at church. And I said yes. Then they invited me to sing a solo on Christmas Eve. uh, And so I sang O Holy Night on Christmas Eve. About a month later, uh, my choir director at church came up to me and said, Someone in the church would like to sponsor you for voice lessons. I said, what does that mean, sponsor? She said, they'd like to pay for you to take voice lessons. Would you be willing to do that? And I was like, sure. So a month later, uh, I showed up for my first voice lesson at the the college, local college there, uh, with a man who had a doctorate uh, from the Juilliard School in New York City. He had had some semblance of a like, classical singing career. Um, and on the piano, when I showed up for my first lesson, was a stack of brand new music, like about this high. He said, that's for you. That's from your sponsor. So I began lessons with this man. Um, after about a year, he went to my sponsor, and he said, I believe this young man could have a career as a professional classical singer, like, like an opera singer kind of thing, would you be willing to pay for him to make an audition tape in our, like we have a recording studio here on campus, would you be willing to make, pay for him to make an audition tape so he can apply for colleges? And they said yes. So I made an audition tape and I sent it to several colleges across the country, ranging from the local community college all the way to the Boston Conservatory of Music. Um, I was accepted to all of them, except for one, Oberlin. Um, And all the ones that I was accepted to, I got a scholarship to. Um, I ended up going to the University of South Florida in Tampa. Um, One, because they had a really good voice teacher, and two, because they offered me the most money. Of course, that set me on a trajectory Uh, which then led me to go to grad school, University of Illinois in Champaign, Illinois, where in my first semester I met Jackie, um, who just happened to be in my opera class. She asked me out. Got no problem with women being 
Aggressive, demonstrative, right? Yeah. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, when I finished my schooling for music and I started trying to get my opera career going, God, God did a judo flip on me. And uh, like I said earlier, uh, he started drawing me to himself through my wife, through my friend Daniel, through my sister, um, drawing me first to himself and then into ministry. And now 20 years later, I'm standing before you telling you this story. God is good, is he not? God transforms lives. He pulls us out of the pit. Um, he frees us from our bondage. He heals us emotionally, spiritually, even physically. I've seen miraculous healings. Um, and he uses us. This is the coolest part. Like, if you haven't figured this out, this is, this is the coolest part. He then uses us to go do that with others. Like when you start seeing God use you to bring others into the family, bring others out of bondage and into freedom, bring others into healing and joy, like there's nothing like it. But at the core of all of this is his chesed love. Right? The generosity and compassion and grace and kindness that Boaz shows Ruth in our scripture this morning um, is a picture of that same grace and love that God shows us. And none of us deserve it. Ruth essentially says, I don't get it. Why are you so kind to me? And here's the last thing I want to leave you with. Um, when we take the time to remember and thank the Lord for the grace and the love that he has shown us, it makes it so much easier to extend that grace and love to others. Especially when we don't think that they deserve it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy, your forgiveness, your chesed love towards us. Thank you that you are still in the business of transforming lives. God, my prayer this morning is that Life Church would be a place where we regularly see you transforming lives. That this would be a church where people are regularly coming to faith in Christ, are being filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, where they're being healed in every way, emotionally, spiritually, even physically. Lord, may this be a church where we are regularly seeing, we are regularly seeking, we are regularly welcoming in those who are on the fringes, those who feel like outsiders, those who feel like strangers, those who feel like they don't fit in. So they too can experience being a part of a community of grace. God, we're, 
we are all being transformed by your presence and by your love for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.